0: The reading today is taken from Psalm 125. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. For the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. Do good, O Lord, to those who are good, and to those who are upright in their hearts. But those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord would lead away with evil doers. Peace be upon Israel. For the next two Sundays, we'll be in the Psalms of Ascent, which has been our regular series, and then we'll have a couple of Sundays uh, where we'll be in an, a mini Advent series where Claire Hine and I will be preaching those sermons. That'll be fun we'll have to do that together. And uh, But for the next couple of weeks, we're going to be back in our Psalms of Ascent series, uh, which is a journey series, talking about the journey of discipleship. And in this series, as we study the Psalms, it's easy to think about the Psalms as being, just applying to ourselves. It's easy to think of that for us as individuals, and that is good. That's normal to do. But it's really important to remember throughout these psalms that these psalms were sung by a congregation together as they were journeying up to the mountain of Jerusalem. Recently, Andy and Drew and I went out on a pastor's retreat. and We went to the Shenandoah National Park. I'm showing you these pictures for a couple reasons. One is I want you to get your mind in the mountains because this is where the mind of the psalmist was. This is a picture that I took. These are clouds surrounding the mountain, uh, one of the mountains that we climbed. Uh, here we are together up on the top of a really cool ridge. Um, here's Andy stuck between—this uh, is old rag. This is an amazing hike. If you've, if you've done it before, if you've never done it, you should do it, but I would get in shape before you do it. I was about to die on this hike. Um, this is Drew uh, on the top of a mountain there, and, and there's us again. But we pastors together, you don't see what we do behind the scenes. We spent a lot of time together with Joe Jackson, who couldn't make it on this trip. He would love to have been there because we were in Charlottesville, which is where his alma mater is. But we were texting Joe throughout the time, like, oh man, we were in this chapel where he used to lead worship with Kisa and all this stuff. So. But we worked together really hard every week to put together the worship service. Uh, every Sunday when you come in here, you really, I mean, you can maybe download, you can download the bulletin on our email beforehand, look at the song list and all that stuff. But you come in every Sunday and you are participating in a worship service that you didn't plan. Uh, you didn't get to vote. You didn't get to pick out the songs. We'd love to hear your feedback from time to time. That's cool. But it's kind of a weird thing, right? Every Sunday you come in and you look at the bulletin and you're like, I guess this is what we're going to do for the next hour and a half together, Right? And you put a lot of trust in us and in the elders who stand behind us and make sure we're doing our job, that that what we're doing is based on Scripture, that we're leading you in the direction of Jesus every Sunday. Every Sunday at Trinity Park, since the beginning, we've said that our goal is to make sure that Jesus is exalted, as he deserves to be all the time, particularly on Sunday mornings, and that we keep our doors wide open to anyone who would want to come in and see Jesus, right? Right? Jesus is exalted. Welcome in anybody who wants to come in. And so we work hard every week to make sure that when people walk in the door, you or anybody else, that Jesus is exalted. You know, every church has what's called a liturgy, a liturgy. If you're unfamiliar with this word, a liturgy is just basically the worship plan. It's what you walk into every Sunday morning. I would say that at Trinity Park, we have a moderately detailed worship plan, a moderately detailed liturgy. I've been in churches where they have like a 12 to 15 page long bulletin where basically all you do, it feels like to me, is you read the whole time. That's one way of doing it. Of course, you have the other extreme today where you walk in and you have an opening song, another song, a welcome, four more songs, a talk, and then you're done. And I'm not here to talk about why we do what we do and why other churches do what they do because you can do liturgy in all kinds of different ways and Jesus can be exalted and you can welcome in your neighbors from the nations, okay? Some churches do uh, have the Lord's Supper every week. Some churches like us have it monthly. I'm glad we can do it monthly. Some churches have it quarterly. Whatever you do, the goal is to make sure that Jesus is exalted, but you've got to, Understand that you walk in every Sunday morning and your responsibility, our responsibility is to plan the worship service as well as we can and to execute it as well as we can so that you can worship. Your responsibility is to walk in and be ready to worship. Listen to what Pastor Jonas McCann, he pastors a rural congregation in Virginia. Listen to what he said about worshiping through liturgy in his book. It's called Love Big, Be Well. It's a really great book. He says this, it is our work to remember we are part of a family, a long line of women and men, strangers and strugglers and dreamers who've all gathered around this table Jesus made possible. Liturgy is something we do together. None of us contrive these prayers and blessings on our own. What a relief it is to know we don't carry this faith alone. Liturgy allows us to affirm truths we might not even believe yet, or truths we're just too exhausted to hold up with our own weary prayers. If liturgy bores you from time to time, you're in good company. I can't imagine anyone who's stuck with anything worth sticking with, who hasn't had more than a few experiences of feeling half-hearted and carried along by the prayers of others. This is precisely one of liturgy's greatest gifts. It invites us to be carried along. I love that. It invites us to be carried along. You don't have to do the Christian life on your own. In fact, you can't. You get to be carried along collectively together by the prayers of the saints and our prayers together. So here today, this Sunday morning, here we are in Advent and we're in Psalm 125. It's a pretty unfamiliar Psalm to most of us. And just like Israel, one day their worship leader got up and they said, guess what we're doing today? We're singing Psalm 125. And the people were like, all right, we're singing Psalm 125. Let's do it, right? So we're going to enter into this together. Psalm 125, it's about trusting God. Why you trust God, when you trust God, and how you trust God. First of all, why do you trust God? The security of God we find in verses one. 1- Why do we trust God? Well, pretty simply, we trust God because we believe as Christians, he is the only person or the only place in this world that we can really find security in life. That's it. That's it. He's the only one. There's no other people. We can't find security in ourselves. It is only in the Lord. It's not in life circumstances. It's not in a country. It's in the Lord. Verse 1. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved, but abides forever. This is extremely countercultural, by the way. Our, Our culture seeks to shape us around messages like this. You might hear it in music, movies, pop psychology. We hear messages like this. You can't trust anyone else. You can only trust in yourself. We hear this. If you believe in yourself, you can accomplish anything. We hear, if you feel you're not enough, then what do you do? Reach down inside yourself and be strong. These are messages that we hear regularly. All the while, Jesus is saying this to us Abide in me. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. He who eats from me will never be hungry. Jesus is saying, Come to me when you're weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And we feel we're in this tug of war as Christians in this world. We're hearing messages from our culture, messages from others. This battle in our hearts is sometimes visceral. We're told by our culture, by the world around us, that maturity is found in self sufficiency. In self sufficiency by being able to stand on your own two feet. That is maturity. All the while Jesus is saying, maturity is not found in self-sufficiency. It is not found in independence. Maturity is found in the one who increasingly over their lifetime learns just how much they need me, just how much they need to depend on me. That is what Jesus is saying about maturity. It's a tug of war for our understanding of what maturity is. Nine years ago, when Olivia and I and a core team of 16 families, mostly from Peace Church, a few from Church of the Good Shepherd, planted this church, we came up with five core values. We probably should talk about these values more often than we do. But one of these values, the very first one was dependence. Dependence. I don't know of another church that has this value, but we chose dependence because, as we observed in our greater culture of the West and in our particular culture in Cary, We are a people here who pride ourselves on our smarts, our affluence, our belief, our core belief that if we just put our mind to it, then we can figure out anything. We can accomplish anything. In the face of this, as a countercultural statement, we were saying we actually only believe really what we believe, even though we're part of this culture and we struggle to believe this at times. What we really believe is that we can't do anything. We can't do anything worth doing if Jesus doesn't do it through us. And so we came up with this core value of dependence. Now, it is so easy to state on a set of core values that we want to be a dependent church, right? It's much more difficult to be a people or a community defined by this value of dependence. We value depending on God. And that's what this psalm is getting at. Verse one, those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion. Now, what does Mount Zion signify? Mount Zion was the mountain uh, in Jerusalem that the temple was built upon. And so what the psalmist is saying is not, uh, we find our security in this mountain itself. What he's saying is we find our security in the God who lives in the temple Who was on this mountain? We find security in the character of God, the abiding character of God, which does not change, which lasts forever. That was a special mountain to the people, but their confidence ultimately wasn't in the mountain. Their confidence was in the God who dwelt on the mountain. And so when we say that our trust is in Mount Zion, what we're really saying is our trust is in the God of Zion, the one who dwells forever immovable, and eternal. Then verse two, as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So the first allusion is to God being under us as our rock, our stability, upon whom we can build our life. Now this analogy is God surrounding us as a set of mountains, a range of mountains protecting us from anyone who would assail us. The metaphor here is that if we simply will locate our lives in God, then he will be our protector. That all we have to do is find ourselves by faith. If we just place ourselves in God, if we enjoy unity with Christ, then by virtue of our relationship to him, by by being in him, he protects us. This summer, uh, as, as many of you know, I had an opportunity to take a sabbatical with my family and one of the places we got to go, which was amazing, which I would recommend to you if you'd like to take a, a little bit more on the expensive side, family vacation. Um, it's in Buena Vista, Colorado, Trail West Family Camp. It's an amazing place. And uh, we went, and it was awesome. And so one night, you know, I do what you do sometimes. I sometimes skip sermons. Um, so I was... There was a sermon, you know, I was like, you know, I'm really not in the mood for another sermon, they have one every night. And so I went out on a walk by myself, and it was dark outside, it was this beautiful night, and the the camp itself is situated in the Collegiate Peaks. It's this mountain range where there's four 14ers that all rise up into the sky. It's just unbelievable, breathtaking. The camp itself is situated just beneath, or 5,000 feet beneath, Mount Princeton. So the camp is at 9,000 feet and the peak is at 14,000 feet, and I'm out walking at night, and the stars are shining so bright, there's no lights on, that you could see where the stars ended and the mountains began, just by the silhouette of the stars against the mountains. And as I was walking by myself in the dark, in this backdrop, seeing these mountains, I felt like God, through the Holy Spirit, was working on me, and he was saying, Corey, do you really believe that I would love you as much as I do right now if you never did another hour of ministry again? If you never preached another sermon, if you did something else, would you still believe that I love you as much as I do right now? And God was speaking to me about his love for me, not not his love for the world, not his love for this church, not his love for my family, just his love for me. And I found, as God was working on my heart, this incredible assurance of God's love for me. And what, what was going on there? Simply by being located in God, simply because God loves me, here I am surrounded by these mountains as a picture of God's love. And simply by being located in the love of God, I can enjoy this rest and this freedom. As free as it was to walk on a beautiful night in the middle of Colorado in these mountains, as sure as that experience is, For me in that moment, that experience of God's love for me, protecting me, surrounding me, is just as real. You don't have to go to Buena Vista. You don't have to go to Jerusalem. You can sit right here in these weirdly colored chairs, and you can enjoy God's love for you. It doesn't matter what's going on in your life, because God is, and as we locate ourselves in him by faith, he protects us, he shelters us. He's a fortress for us against the storms of life. You know, Eugene Peterson said this in a long obedience in the same direction. He said, my feelings are important for many things. They are essential and valuable. They keep me aware of much of what is true and real, but they tell me next to nothing about God or my relation to God. My security comes from who God is, not from how I feel. Discipleship is a decision to live by what I know about God and not what I feel about him or myself or my neighbors. God is security for us simply because we know him through Christ. He is security for us. It doesn't matter what our culture says. It doesn't matter what our feelings say. It doesn't matter what anyone says. God is security for us at any given time in the midst of our lives. So how can we, instead of living in the confusion that our culture brings or our feelings bring or maybe our relationships bring, how can we live in the security that's offered for us in Christ? Well, I first heard Tim Keller say this phrase that we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. We need to be reminding ourselves. He says, nobody talks to you more than you do. And there's all these competing voices. And so what are you, what, what message are you preaching to yourself? What voices are you allowing to shape your world view? We need to remind ourselves of verses like this. See, I lay in Zion a precious cornerstone. He who trusts in him, in Jesus, will never be put to shame. As I hide myself, making God's grace the cornerstone of my life, no matter how my sins in the past or in the future might scream at me, no matter how the voices and opinions of others might seek to shape me, really, I have rested my life on the cornerstone of Jesus Christ's grace. And so there is no shame for you or for me. We need to remind ourselves of scriptures like this. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Psalm 118, 22. As our culture is saying, Jesus is worthless. This is a worthless message that you would locate your life, your security outside of yourself in Jesus Christ, who died on a cross. What a ridiculous message. We say, no, the cross of Christ is my hope. It is the cornerstone of my life. It is more real. The cross of Jesus is more real than anything my culture should say to me or could say to me. And so I will locate my hope in the message of the gospel of Jesus. Or maybe what makes you crave security more than anything else is the seemingly unending transitions and changes of life. You look out at your life and it seems like at every point, in, in every sphere sometimes, there is change. I've had a few weeks like that in my life, even recently. And you long that, that things would just stop changing and that we could find security in our circumstances. Maybe for you, you're experiencing changes at work changes with your kids, changes with your parents, changes with your church, changes with your finances, and those changes are making you long for security. That security is not found in finding this zen moment where everything is harmonious. Everything's already harmonious because Jesus is your security and you can hide yourself in him. Tim Keller says this, Lord, I find the relentless transitions and changes of life exhausting, but you do not change, and you are my dwelling place. How beautiful are these two opening verses. Those who trust in the Lord are like Mount Zion, which cannot be moved but abides forever. As the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people from this time forth and forevermore. So we trust God because he is our source of security. But it's almost as like the psalmist predicts our rebuttal. Maybe we might say, but you don't know how evil the world is around me. You don't know the challenges that I face in life. You don't know how desperate I am because of the the challenges that I face, the evil that surrounds me. The second point this morning is the limits of evil. We find that in verse 3. When do we trust God? We trust God in the midst of a wicked and evil and broken world. And this is the only place we can learn to trust God. Verse 3, for the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous lest the righteous stretch out their hands to do wrong. The word scepter here signifies political powers. It's talking about the governments and authorities in place in our world that perpetrate evil against the church. And I know our tendency would immediately be to go to American politics and view this verse through our lens, but I want to caution you against doing that. It's not going to be helpful, all right? So what I'd like for you to do instead is look, through the, look at this through the biblical lens. This is most likely written in the period of uh, Jeremiah and Ezra. It's a period for the people of God where the people experienced great persecution, great opposition, not full on the worst they ever experienced, but it was bad. It was real bad. And they had to worship God in the midst of this evil scepter that they faced around them. The promise here from God is that God sets the limits of evil in our world. That there are boundaries that evil cannot cross because God has a sovereign plan that he's working out because God cares for his people and we'll get to this in a minute because he knows that we couldn't withstand certain levels of temptation and so he guards us against from what we could become and he doesn't carry us into those situations. This should be a source of reassurance for us here, because we do have to view our own political sphere, but also as we look at the world around us. James Montgomery Boyce said this. He said, It is not as though Christians have no enemies we do, nor is it that we nor that we have no reasons to feel insecure. It is not under perfect conditions that we learn to trust God, but in a wicked world. Sometimes it seems to us, if we're honest, for just for a moment, it feels like that Satan has moments in time where he gains the upper hand, maybe even seasons of time, where God is sort of losing his grip on what is going on in the world. I mean, who cannot have thoughts like that as they look at slavery, the trafficking of 50 million people around the world? What do we do with that? What do we do with the persecution of the church around the world where Men who love God are arrested and jailed and tried and killed for their faith. What do we do? How do we reconcile that with God setting limits on evil? Verse 3 made me think of the time in 2 Kings when Israel was facing a foreign army. And it looked so bleak for them. They felt outnumbered on every side. And Elisha's servant came up to Elisha and said, what should we do? I mean, the odds are not in our favor. Should we just retreat? And God enabled Elisha to look up and have a vision and understand what God was doing. And he allowed Elisha to see these heavenly armies that he had called. And Elisha said this, no, let's not retreat because those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Those who are with us are more than those who are against us. This is what this church in China last week needed to believe. This is a picture of a church service where the police came in and forced a SWAT team to carry off their pastors and others to jail last week. What should we do? Should we retreat? Should we run? No, because those who are with us are more than those who are against us. Easy for us to say. Uh, Wang Yi, pastor at Early Rain Church, who we've talked about a lot in our church over the last year. He was on December 9th, which is coming up soon. And I think we're gonna have a prayer gathering that night. I'm still working on organizing that. So you'll you'll hear from me. China Partnership, who we work with, has asked us to organize something. That would be the one year anniversary of when Wang Yi and about 22 other elders and deacons and uh, workers in the church, and about 500 other people were arrested from the church. So basically, if if they came in today, all of us would get arrested and taken off to jail. But they have systematically persecuted the elders of the church and the leaders of the church so that now only two are, are in jail, the librarian and Wang Yi, the pastor, The librarian on Friday of last week was tried, and he was. If he would have just said, you know what, I agree with the government in some kind of a half measured way, then they would have let him go free. It wasn't even a full confession, it was just a halfway confession. And he was unwilling to cooperate with the government, so they sentenced him to four years in prison. Wang Yi's trial is this week, possibly tomorrow. And he's not going to agree with the government either. And he's probably going to get 10 years to life in prison. Why are they willing to go through this? Because they believe that those who are for them are more than those who are against them. They believe that God is their defender. That even if right now it looks bleak, in the end, they will win the war because God will win the war. In the end, this is just a moment in time. And right now, it looks like these forces outnumber the church in China. But the church will win. The church will win. I heard a, a pastor in India one time, it was a great sermon. actually preached it at peace a while back, like 10 years ago. And he is an, is an Indian pastor, Isaac Shaw. And the whole sermon was, if you are with God, you win. And are, you, if you are with Satan, you lose. If you're with God, you win. With Satan, you lose. He said it over and over and over again. Very helpful. I remembered it 10 years later. If you're with God, you win. You're with Satan, you lose. We just have to hold on in the midst of the trial. We believe that Psalm 34, 7 is true. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Why does God limit evil? Why does he do this? Well, it says the scepter of wickedness shall not rest on the land allotted to the righteous, lest, unless, as way we would say that now, the righteous stretch out their hands to do what is wrong. What, what that means basically is like, he's trying to keep us from where we could go. He's trying to keep us from the extent of how far we could fall. 1 Corinthians ten thirteen says that God will not allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. God sets a limit to evil. Now you may look at your life and you, you think, how can I reconcile the evil that I've experienced in this world? with that reality of the gospel? I'm not sure. We should have a conversation about it. Those are difficult questions. Let's walk into that together. But you can know that ultimately, the evil that you face, whether it's from a scepter of wickedness, a, for, a government a government power, or it's an evil authority in your life that you just can't believe God is allowed to exist this long. God is at work. God is in power. He is setting a limit on evil. He is at work in your life. He will not allow evil to go beyond what you can handle. And sometimes he calls us not to stay in a situation where we're being abused or something like that. Sometimes he's calling you, actually every time if you're being abused, he's calling you to get out of it, okay? You're not called to remain underneath. If you're, th- if you're interpreting this, I just feel like I need to say this, not my notes. If you're interpreting this through the lens of Well, then I am being oppressed by evil powers and it's abusive. No, the answer isn't that you stay. The answer is that you get out. God provides answers outside of that abusive relationship. That's how he protects you. So don't take it there, right? Okay. So when do we trust God? We trust God in a wicked world. Why do we trust God? Because he is security for us. And then finally, how do we trust God? We engage in the prayers of, Of God's people, the prayers of God's people. Let me start with this quote from Eugene Peterson in A Long Obedience. Some have supposed that the Christian life is teetering and wobbling along a rail, taunted by the devil and his angels. With some skill and a lot of luck, we might just make it to heaven, but it's an uncertain business at best. Psalm 125 says, that it, is not the way, that it is not this way at all. Being a Christian is like sitting in the middle of Jerusalem, fortified and secure. And so the last sentence is peace over Israel. A colloquial translation would be, relax, we are secure, God is running the show. I love that. I think so often we feel like that is the Christian life. We're, we're walking along like a railroad rail and, and people are throwing rocks at us. And if we fall off at any given moment, God's gonna be displeased with us and we might not even make it to the end. And that's the Christian life. The, the picture offered for us, the assurance offered for us in Psalm 125 couldn't be more different. The picture of the Psalm is that you are sitting secure and relaxed in the middle of a mountain range where you are being taken care of. In that view of God, those two opposing views, I'm teetering on a rail and I am secure, relaxed in Jerusalem, will greatly impact how you pray because it impacts how you perceive your God. There are three prayers that we will learn to pray as we learn to relax in the security of God. The first prayer is, do good, O Lord, to those who are good. And to those who are upright in their hearts. Do good, O Lord. Do good, O Lord, to us and to those whom you love, to those whom we are in community with. You know, as Christians, we can be kind of weird about prayer sometimes, it can be really stoically awkward. We find it sometimes hard or we, we feel mixed about praying for good things for ourselves. I mean, particularly when you see something like what's going on in China or what's going on with these people at IJM, we feel like these are all first world problems that we face. And you know what? They, maybe they are, okay? But still, who are you going to pray to if you desire for good things to happen in your life? Exactly where is that goodness going to come from? Because it's not going to come from you, Right? James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift comes from above. It comes from the Lord. And so there's nothing wrong. Of course, as this psalmist prayed, his main prayer, his main prayer was, God, send us a redeemer. Send us a redeemer. Lord, set the world to rights. This world is broken. All of these prayers are prayed with Advent in view. Advent is, we are sitting here, this is the first Sunday of Advent. What does this mean here? It means we are sitting between the now and the not yet. We're sitting between the now and the not yet. For the psalmist now, God had already provided Jerusalem and it was somewhat secure and he was grateful for it. He was longing for a day when Christ would come or a redeemer would come and set the world to rights and make him ultimately secure. We sit here in Advent and we look back to the first coming of Christ. And he has come for us and he has saved us from our sins. He has forgiven us. He's brought us into his family so that we are secure. But as Martin Luther said, we still live in a world with devils filled and we feel it every day. We feel, as Andy prayed, we feel for the longing and expectation of God setting the world ultimately to rights. And so we sit in an in-between time. We look back at Christ and his first coming. We look forward to Christ and his second coming when he will wipe every tear from our eyes. When all things will be made new. And so, in this in between time, we look back to our Redeemer who has come and we pray, Lord, send us Jesus. Send us Jesus. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to come back for us. But while we're in this Advent season, which is really symbolic of all of our lives, what else do we pray for? Lord, do good. Do good to me. Do good to our family. Do good to our church we have hinged everything on you. Everything in our lives, we have hinged on you. We've hinged our finances on you. That's why we give more than we think we can. We've hinged our time on you. That's why we serve more than we feel like we have the bandwidth for. We've hinged our community on you. That's why we align ourselves here and not with everybody else. We've hinged our life on you. That's why we lead our children to know you and not to pursue unlimited wealth or power like you might in another worldview. We have hinged everything on you. And so do good to us, God, because where else is good gonna come from? Do good to us. And so don't be stoically awkward as a Christian about praying for good things for your life. You should pray that your kids will know the Lord. You should pray. If you feel like you need a new home, pray for it. If you feel like you need a raise, pray for it. If you feel like you need God to work in your marriage, pray for it. If you feel like God needs to work in your community, pray for it. You should pray for it. You shouldn't be weird and only pray about things that directly relate to the coming of Jesus or Jesus is a redeemer or something very only narrow in the scope of what Jesus has come to do. Jesus has come to make his blessings flow as far as the curse is found. And so you can pray for anything. Under the sovereignty of God, God will take care of answering your prayers, right? He may say, you know what? I know you want that good thing. That's not what I want for you. I want something else. And that's okay. You don't need to predict the sovereignty of God. Just pray. Pray for God to do good to you and to those around you. The second prayer that we pray in verse five is, but those who turn aside to their crooked ways, the Lord will lead away with evildoers. So here we don't just pray for the curbing of evil in our world. We pray also for the full punishment of evildoers. The first thing we pray is for people who have turned aside, we pray for their repentance. We pray for their restoration and their renewal. If there are people from our community who have turned aside, we pray for them. We want them to be renewed. We want them to be brought back into the church, okay? If, if that is if part of what we see evil doing in the world around us. We want to show the gospel to them in the way that we love them. Speak the gospel to them so that they might return to Christ and his gracious love. I want to say that I don't know where you are. You may feel like you've wandered off. There is no place you can find yourself this morning. There is no place in all the world where God cannot bring you back from wherever you are. And so that is our prayer for anyone who has turned aside. But also we pray for the punishment of the crooked, those who are not going to turn. As we look at something like slavery and sex trafficking in the world, as we look at these these police officers in China who are raiding the church, we pray for their repentance too. I don't know what God's gonna do, but ultimately, one of the greatest things about being a Christian is that you know that God is going to bring justice in the world. He is not gonna let evil go unpunished. We get all excited about it, and we should praying about the gospel and about renewal. We should also be excited to pray for the ending of injustice in our world. One day, IJM won't need to exist. One day. Because God will make things new and he will punish the crooked. Trusting people pray often for God to visit his people with good and they pray for God to visit the crooked with his justice. So that they'll either seek his face and repent or be wiped off the face of the earth. I forgot to stop at the first one, but I really want you to stop for just a second. I forgot to, in the first section about praying for good. So you can do it both at the same time. What good do you want to pray for to God, for God to accomplish in your life or in our church or in the world? And then you can also think for a minute, I'll give you a little bit longer. What evil do you long for God to end in the world that you want to put as part of your prayers uh, for the coming Advent season. So think about what good are you praying for and what evil are you praying God will bring his justice in. Take a second. You can write it down or you can just think about it in your mind. You can think about it a little bit later as well. We'll do it again after this third and final prayer that the psalmist mentions. He says, peace be upon Israel. Peace be upon Israel. This word peace means much more than emotional peace or tranquility of circumstances or something like that. What it means is that we long for God to bring his shalom in the world, his shalom, shalom is wholeness or fruition, whereas in the curse, all of creation was broken. Another way of putting that is bottled up. We were unable to achieve, because of the curse, all that God intended, all the goodness God intended for his creation. And what God does in his second coming, what he will do when all things are made new, is he will set the world to rights. He will bring fruition where there is a bottling up. He will bring wholeness where now there is injustice and brokenness. And so people who love God, people who are walking with God and praying these prayers, often pray for God to bring not just healing, but longing for full redemption. Not just justice, but for complete wholeness in the world, for all things to be made new. So what area of our world are you longing for to see this kind of shalom, this kind of full fully realized wholeness in the world. Think about what you'd like to pray for that you'd be able to see wholeness in. It could be in a relationship in your life. could be something you see in the world around you. Ask God to bring wholeness in these broken places right now. So as we learn to trust God and find security in him, and as we look out into an evil world, and we realize this is the context for us to trust God, we should become praying people. That's what this is all about. We should be praying people. How do we fight? How do we fight for, we fight through prayers. We learn to pray the prayers of God's people. One of those people that we can follow their example, follow their example is St. Patrick. St. Patrick wrote this as a journal entry in the 5th century in Ireland, and it's now become a famous prayer. I was really encouraged by this this week. He says, I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guard me, God's way to lie before me. God's shield to protect me. God's host to save me from the snares of devils, from the temptation of vices, from everyone who shall wish me ill. Christ to shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that there may be an abundance of reward. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ when I arise. I arise today through Christ's mighty strength. You don't have to be able to write prayers like St. Patrick, okay? I don't think any of us really can. That's not the point. The point is, as you are looking for security in God in the midst of a world with devils filled, how is your prayer life? Are you taking those concerns to God? Are you saying, God, I need you to do good to me. Lord God, judge evil. Wipe it from the face of the earth. And Lord, I long for the day when all things will be made new, when full wholeness will be brought where there is now brokenness. Lord, I long for that day. Are you living in the surrounding of the mountain. Prayer is one way we do that. How do you rest? How do you relax? You relax through praying. Honestly, you relax through being there with God and saying, Lord God, help me. I can't help myself. That is an extremely countercultural statement. I can't help myself, but you can help me. That's the heart of prayer. That's the heart of Psalm 125. And that's our heart as Christians. Let me pray. Lord God, as we come to you, uh, as we transition to taking the Lord's Supper, Lord, we recognize that you are our security. Lord God, we walk through all kinds of challenges in life. If we were to make a list of them together as a congregation here today, it would number in the thousands of challenges that we face. And yet, Lord, your promise to us is that you are our security in the midst of that. Lord God, that that your cross and your resurrection are so secure for us, your gospel is so secure, it is as a mountain surrounding us, a protective mountain range where none can come against us. Even as we see pictures of what is happening in the world to your church, Lord, we recognize that you are winning the battle. And so, Lord God, I pray for anybody who's struggling today with putting their confidence in you. Lord, I pray that you would enable us to do that. Enable us to do that by praying the prayers of your people humbly. Even as in that beginning part of that that quote, Lord, we we come in sometimes, we come in half-heartedly, we come in distracted, we come in needing to be carried along. But Lord God, you do carry us along. You do carry us along by your grace through all seasons and all storms. And so God, I pray as we move into this time of taking communion together. Lord, would you strengthen us for the journey ahead as we live in this now and not yet in between time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.